Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. Before you have children, you may have some expectations about what you expect and how you want to be as a parent. And then you realize that once you have children, things are never going to be quite what you expect. The predominant feeling in our home was the desire for them to sort of self-actualize into people that they wanted to be, to give them that freedom to grow as, as people and to experience the world in their own unique ways. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Lucas. A lot of parents assume that their children are heterosexual and cisgender, and many may think it would be quite awful if they weren't. From the moment a child is born, many parents make all kinds of assumptions about what the child's life will look like. Many of these assumptions are based in norms, expectations, and stereotypes that follow the assumption that the child will be heterosexual and cisgender. Parents might envision their daughter walking down the aisle in a wedding dress, marrying a man in the distant future. The parents may think about how proud they'll be in that moment and how they'll know they've been successful in raising their child. But when a child is gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, gender nonconforming, or otherwise a member of a sexual or gender minority, those assumptions may be challenged. And a lot of people might feel that if their child doesn't fit those expectations, it speaks negatively about their parenting abilities. Ultimately, it's rooted in the idea that being LGBTQ or having LGBTQ children is a bad thing, or at least not as good as having straight cisgender children. This can be very damaging. Emma was an outcasting youth participant during their high school years. They spoke on an edition of Outcasting Overtime about how, after coming out, their mother went through all of the stages of grief except acceptance, called a psychiatrist, told Emma, it's just a phase, and functionally forced Emma back into the closet, shutting down a big part of Emma's identity. And it can get worse than that. Some parents actually disown their children when they find out they're LGBTQ. The implications of family rejection for LGBTQ youth are alarming. According to the Human Rights Campaign, LGBTQ youth are more than twice as likely to be homeless as heterosexual cisgender youth. The Trevor Project reports that lesbian, gay, and bisexual youth are almost five times as likely as heterosexual youth to have attempted suicide. Family rejection makes a lesbian, gay, or bisexual person more than eight times as likely to attempt suicide. The suicide rate is even higher for transgender people, with 40% of transgender adults reporting having attempted suicide, the vast majority when they were under 25. But it doesn't have to be that way. How much better a world we could have if parents did what all parents should do, just love their children, whether those children are straight and cisgender or LGBTQ. On this edition of Outcasting, we begin a conversation with Mimi and Jerry Goodman of New York. Both of their now-grown children, Jesse and Sarah, are gay. For them, that has been wonderful. This is the first part of a series. Mimi and Jerry Goodman, thank you for joining us. It's our pleasure. And we're happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourselves. 
I was a social worker in the Clarkston school system for 25 to 30 years. I've always loved working with children. And one of my favorite things about my job is that I got to work with children of all ages and particularly children in the Gay-Straight Alliance because I was the co-advisor to the Gay-Straight Alliance. Both Jerry and I have always been interested in social causes and we're involved in a, a lot of activist causes. That's always been the case, more now more so than ever. I uh, taught in the South Bronx for 36 years, and I really, really enjoyed that work. At the end of my career, I got to uh, be the school counselor at the Harvey Milk High School the first year that it opened, which was in some ways the pinnacle of, of my career, getting a chance to work in the only public high school for the LGBT community in the entire country. Today, we're here to talk about your children, who are both gay and had interesting coming out experiences. So many people consider having a child as one of the most important moments in their life. How did you feel when you learned you were having your first child? Although I love children, and my entire career has been working with children, I think when I found out I was having my first child, who I didn't know was going to be Jesse. I think one of my first emotions was being a little bit scared, which is interesting because I was working with children at the time, and as I said to you, always loved them. But I never babysat as a young person growing up. So many girls, you know, babysat. So many of my friends had younger siblings or younger cousins that they took care of. I was never in that uh, a group of people, never diapered a baby, never took care of a baby. At the time, I don't think any of Jerry and I lived in Manhattan. None of our friends had children. So it was kind of, interestingly, a strange world for me. And when I tried to look back, because remember, we're going back many years, and I had to tap into feelings about it, I think the predominant emotion was being a little scared. So I, there I was taking the graduate record exam <laughs> at NYU, Knowing that Mimi was at uh, Planned Parenthood taking the test to see if she was pregnant, I probably could have done a little bit better on the exam because I was like just wanting to finish so that I could make a phone call. Back in those days, there were no cell phones. So I found a phone booth at NYU and called home to find out that uh, Mimi was pregnant. I remember my predominant emotion being excited also sort of sprinkled with a, a good amount of fear. I mean, I have to say that the thought of having a child in some ways, as it was exhilarating and exciting, also was, am I a competent enough person? Am I a good enough person to take on this responsibility as a parent? And I remember even thinking, hmm, what if my child asks me, why is the sky blue? And I don't have an answer for it. I need to start doing more research. <laughs> so both of you mentioned that you had that fear and that worry of not being enough and not being able to teach your child the correct things, as you said, Jerry. What kind of things were you afraid of? Because you mentioned not being able to adequately teach them and help them grow up, but like, what other kind of things? It was not like... Uh, a feeling like I wouldn't be able to do this or that. It was more like a general feeling of, will I be up for the task? I was excited, and the predominant feeling was a positive one. 
But it was also, you know, realizing that this is a very big uh, responsibility. So I know a lot of parents, when they find out that they're going to have a child, they start to plan their children's lives in their head, or they'll they'll make investments, or they'll buy certain things. Do you remember any specifics of the things you thought that your tra- your children might be? I grew up in a household that was, I'm going to say, very rich in culture. Um, I always said I didn't grow up in a household with a lot of money, um, but I never felt like I was deprived. And I think, so I grew up in a European household mostly. Uh, it had that flavor. My mother was from Hungary, my father from Poland. My grandmother lived with us, and they spoke Hungarian to each other. So I grew up in a very, a very that feeling of a European household. And culture is very, very important in that world. And I grew up in a household of very big readers and very big art lovers and very big lovers of the theater. And so when I think about what I wanted for my children, I think I wanted them to have a world that was rich in culture. And books always meant an enormous amount to my family. So we had a lot of books for our children. The other thing is I always read poetry to, to um, my children. As a matter of fact, I just had a flash of a memory of my father holding Jesse and walking around with him. And in our house, there were paintings all over the wall of, uh, from the Sistine Chapel and from Italy. And, from, and he would walk around when he was a baby, showing him the pictures and telling him where they were from, that this is a Michelangelo. This is so. That's my predominant feeling, not so much of, oh, you're going to be a doctor or I want you to be a lawyer. More, I want you to have culture. Okay, because I know very specific stories of parents kind of even before having their children prepping like specific fields for them to go into or and even as with young children like prepping them for college and it seems very much in your personality to not be like that I don't think that was part of our feelings or life at all, having that kind of professional expectation that it definitely was not a part of it. The thing that stands out is a rich life is a life of somebody who is a reader, is a lover of poetry, is a lover of the arts. I think that's what was the predominant feeling. So you've mentioned a lot of like, um, I think you said like intellectual expectations. Do you have any like social expectations for your children, child at the time? That's a very good question. (laughs) Or not only social, but like who, like uh, feelings of who they would be, because your job is not all you would be. Your interests are not either. I mean, I I have to say that before you have children, you may have some expectations about what you expect and how you want to be as a parent. And then you realize that once you have children, things are never going to be quite what you expect. So I think very early on, we began to realize that, no, neither one of us really were going to drive our children to be lawyers or doctors or athletes if they didn't want to be athletes. But I think that the predominant feeling in our home, aside from the cultural piece that Mimi just spoke about, was the desire for them to sort of self-actualize into people that they wanted to be, to give them that freedom to grow as, as people and to 
experience the world in their own unique ways. And it turned out that they were both rather unique. So I want to add some things. A memory just came to me. Both of our kids are very strong personalities, and that's something parents don't know what their child is going to be like and what their temperament is going to be. I don't think that we could have made either one of our children do anything that they didn't want to do. And I have a memory of Jesse when he was three years old. We were sitting in a car, and he said to me very passionately, I wish I were a grown-up. And I said, really, why do you feel that way? And then he said, because then I could do exactly what I want to do, and nobody could tell me what to do. (laughs) And I have to say in our family, as the story goes... It's been that way ever since, (laughs) since he was three years old. Absolutely. And so as a a young child, he was not always easy. He was in some ways a a demanding child, and uh, there was a time that he was colicky and didn't sleep much, so we didn't sleep much, so that was not so easy. But he was always an amazingly interesting kid. (laughs) So we were never bored. And he is someone that you can actually say grew into himself. He said he wanted to be a grown-up. He became the most fabulous grown-up. We couldn't have a better son than, uh, than Jesse. Back then, before you had children... What were your views of the LGBTQ community? Because I know it was a different time, and you two are both strong advocates and strong activists. But back then, and I know it's it was a different time, but do you remember anything about your opinions? Well, you know, I was giving this some thought, and I have to say, I feel like to my shame, maybe, I don't think I thought about the LGBT community. And I think one of the reasons was that That shows, I think, how deeply people were in the closet. It wasn't something that was in in the back of my mind or the forefront of my mind. I really have to say, and if I were to be, you know, being completely honest, I don't think I thought about it. And I think that's really strange considering I want to say to you that at the time, Jerry and I had best friends. They were a lesbian couple, and they were our best friends. And We never thought anything about the struggles that they were going through. They didn't speak about anything, but it's as if their life existed kind of in a vacuum. I don't think we felt their life existed in any way connected to to social issues or anything going on in the world. And I just want to add to that, that my mother was a teacher at the time. With uh, There were a number of gay men working in the school that she worked in. She was very friendly with them. She was very close to them. And once again, it was almost as if this was all separate from anything real going on. And I think that when I think about that, it really, it, it kind of amazes me. So there weren't negative views. It's almost like saying we were accepting, but there weren't any views in a, in a real way of saying, what does this community have to deal with? So we moved to Riverdale this last year in the, in the Bronx. And this is where we lived when we were first together, we lived on the Upper West Side. And then when Mimi was pregnant with Jesse, we moved to Riverdale. And during this time, we had this couple, as Mimi said, they were our closest couple friends. And about two years ago, I looked one of them up, still had the address in Riverdale. And I called and left a message on her phone. It was almost like a feeling of 
well, wanting to reconnect, but also in a way making amends, you know, that, hey, we knew you when we were in our 20s. We have now been LGBT activists, and I mean, you know, not just local, but on the state level for over 20 years. And I want to apologize for not understanding what you must have been going through back then. She didn't answer. (laughs) No, she didn't. We didn't get a response, but we would have been happy if we had. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcasting youth participant Alex is talking with Mimi and Jerry Goodman of New York. Both of Mimi and Jerry's grown children are gay. When you had Jesse, was it a difficult transition to go from not having a child to suddenly having a child? I would say it was in some ways. And we had not been married all that long, you know, uh, a year and a half before having Jesse. And we needed to figure out roles that that, uh, we didn't need to figure out uh, before Jesse was born. I mean, for example... Mimi needed at that time more sleep than than I did. So Jesse was colicky and would get up uh, at night. And uh, so I was the one who would do that. And there were roles, you know, in terms of changing diapers and these different things that Mimi taught me how to be a feminist. I think that's a way to, to put it that she basically guided me in a direction that helped me a lot. I'm not saying I was perfect, but uh, in terms of sharing uh, responsibilities and bringing up a child together. I think that it was a very big transition. One of the things I mentioned previously was not being in a world of people who had children. And being in a world of people who have children already, that's a very big support. So I felt like it was a little bit isolated because I wasn't in a world of mothers and babies. Um, But when I look back, I sometimes wonder, because Jesse was a child who um, cried a lot, was very... As he, if we get to the age of, um, if we're going to one and two already, very wanting to be a grown-up, so he never wanted to miss out on anything, which meant he did not like to go to sleep. He did not like a bedtime because you might be missing out on something really exciting that that grown-up world is doing. But this is just an interesting thing I want to throw out there that I don't know if there's an answer to it, and Jerry and I have talked about it, which is I always wondered, because I think children know at a very, very early age that they're different in some way. I think that even two- and three-year-olds can have maybe an unspoken tension when they recognize, not in a conscious way, that you're not part of the straight world. And I always wondered... And again, as I said, I don't know if there's an answer. And I always wondered if that figured into it. I mean, I know this inborn temperament, but also having sort of a tension of maybe not being exactly like the other little boys. And I think there are ways that this did manifest. So it's just something I've always wondered about because I felt like he was a very, there was a tension about him. And when I did finally meet other mothers who had children, he wasn't quite like their babies and their little children. So we would play games 
before bedtime, and if it were up to Jesse, the game would never end. One of the games we played, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Hungry Hungry Hippo? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we would play the Hungry Hungry Hippo game, and we would play it over and over and over again, and Jesse said, one more time. <laughs> one more time. So we developed the Hungry Hippo song march to bed, which was Hungry Hungry Hippo, Hungry Hungry Hippo, and I would lead Mimi and Jesse, and we would head up to the bedroom. When he got a little older and started developing his own personality, and not to say that he didn't have a personality, but starting becoming himself, what kind of kid was he? How did that manifest in ways other than not wanting to go to sleep and wanting to be? Do you know what I mean? I think that he was much happier as he got older, because I think then he could expend some of that energy, that he had tremendous energy. And, you know, as you get older, you can make more decisions about your life. The older you get, you get more freedom. You make more decisions. You reach an age where you can, now we're getting, jumping to the teenage years, I realize. But when you reach the teenage years, very often you have a car or your friends have a car. You have mobility. Uh, I would say that the more freedom he got, because that was always a very, very big driving force, as you know already with him, I think that he uh, became happier. And you'll find this interesting because uh, when he got a little bit older, he became, in high school, became very interested in interviewing people, as you are doing. And he actually called up some very famous people out of the blue and uh, actually got interviews with some people who are fairly well-known because in that energy, which is so wonderful about him, this fantastic energy, he just didn't, doesn't give up. And uh, I think he's one of his predominant traits is feeling like that he is equal to everybody and everyone is equal to him. And one of the things we used to say in our household is that he could have dinner with the Queen of England and he would feel in a very nice way that she's lucky to have dinner with him and he's <laughs> lucky to have dinner with her. And it's a, I don't know where he gets that from. I don't think Jerry or I feel this way, but it's an incredible trait, isn't it? Because it's even about equality, because it's not that he feels he's above anyone. Were you ever worried about him being so bold and confident? Like, what did you think he would grow up to be like? Hmm. He seemed like as a little person, as yeah. an adult. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I want to go... Mimi has moved from early childhood <laughs> to the teen years, but I want to quickly. <laughs> I want to go back just a bit to give you an idea of uh, how things changed when we moved from uh, the Riverdale to uh, Greenberg in Westchester to a uh, condominium development where Jesse had more freedom. And with that freedom, even at age five, he was already becoming an easier person to be with because he had more freedom. And one, one story, I had a cousin who uh, was a vice president of Keebler uh, Cookie Company, and he came to visit and brought Jesse a gift, an attache case, like a business attache case filled with cookies. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Jesse disappeared, came back an hour later with an attache case that was empty, 
and about $15. He had gone door to door selling cookies. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that sounds like he might be an entrepreneur, but I never thought that he would go into business, by the way, into the business field. I don't think we were sure where he, which direction he would go in. I think we knew it would be filled with energy and throw himself into whatever direction he went into. Seven years later, exactly seven <laughs> years after his birth, on the exact same day, you had your daughter, Sarah. What was it like to have a household with a little girl after seven years of raising a very bold, very (laughs) assertive boy. We were very, very thrilled. (laughs) (laughs) And she probably on the surface was as opposite of personality on the surface as Jessie could be because she very interestingly, and again, this goes to how children show who they are at a very, very early age. She almost never cried. And the reason babies cry is to bring the adult to them for their needs. So there was something almost very bizarre for us. We were not used to that. She hardly ever cried. And uh, sometimes you wouldn't hear from her for hours. And we would start going sneaking into the room in the crib not to wake her. And she would be awake on her back. And she would be looking at her hands in the air as a baby. And interestingly, she is an artist. And I think that it already showed something because what she was looking at was sort of patterns and and shapes and the way her hand was moving. So in many ways, her energy level, she has a very rich inner life. And Jessie had a very rich outer life. So we're talking about like almost a diametric opposite. It was much more peaceful and calm with her in the, in the <laughs> early years. Sometimes, you know, Mimi's talking about her looking at her hands, but she was very flexible, and sometimes she was actually looking at her toes. <laughs> <laughs> True. How did this change the household? I think you said that they were diametrically opposed in personality and in like energy. Did they argue when, when she grew up a little bit more? Did they get along well? Jesse... Well, let me backtrack about something. All my friends said to me, oh, don't have that baby on Jesse's birthday. Don't do that, as if I had control. He said, he's been alone, the master of the house, for seven years. And we said, of course I'm not going to have this baby on your birthday. But I did, because you can't (laughs) control that. And it was not what they thought. He was thrilled about it. He, He was really excited. And he has always been very extremely protective of her, very loving, and very extraordinarily proud of her. I think that she just, I don't know, really touches something in him. He's he's very, very, very good to her. And so I would not say on his part there was typical sibling rivalry. I think probably Jerry would agree if rivalry came from somewhere, which was a surprise. It more came from Sarah. Um, He's a hard act to follow. But you know what? She's her own act. She's her own act in a different way. Plus... uh, he was, in some ways, seven years apart, uh, a big brother and a second dad. Yeah, that's a big age gap. Yeah. yeah. This has been such a great conversation, and we'll continue it next time. Mimi and Jerry Goodman, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. We've been very much enjoyed meeting you and having this interview. You've done a wonderful job, by the way. Thank you very much. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, 
including youth participants Alex, Andrew, Dante, Druv, Amelie, and me, Lucas. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or at school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386, or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. I'm Lucas. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.